You're listening to episode 40 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is all about digital well-being. It is a huge topic and a much needed topic to be chatting about. So I'm actually going to launch straight into the chat today with my guest, Dr. Christy Goodwin, and I know you are going to get so much value from what we chat about today. So let's get the chat started. Dr. Christy Goodwin is one of Australia's leading digital well-being and productivity experts and mum who also deals with her kids' techno tantrums. She's the author of Raising Your Child in a Digital World, a speaker, media commentator and digital well-being researcher. Christy's worked as an educator for 14 years before becoming an academic and speaker. She has worked with corporate clients and spoken at national and international conferences at schools, workplaces and medical conferences throughout Australia. Christy is regularly called upon by the media to translate the latest research about teens, kids, adults, and screens into practical and relevant information. She provides evidence-based information and realistic solutions about how technology is impacting students' physical and mental health and shaping their learning. Christy, welcome to Chat About Children. Great to be here, Sonia. I'm glad you're here because it's a massive topic. I certainly wouldn't want to tackle it on my own. So thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I often say that raising screen ages is both confusing and concerning, whether you're a parent or an educator who's trying to deal with these. So we're all in this together. Oh gosh, we're hearing that a lot lately. We are hearing that a lot. We're all in this together. And I haven't heard the term screen ager yet. So let's add that to the vocab. Thank you. Screenager. All right, look, before we launch into this massive topic, and we're going to make it really simple and not so massive for the listeners by the end of this. So that's one thing to highlight. But tell us just a bit about you, Christy, like what led you into this area of digital well-being? Uh, So as you said in my bio, that sounded very fancy. The story I'm about to share with you will realise that I actually fell into this work through a series of serendipitous events. I had been, as you suggested, an educator for 14 years in early childhood and primary school and then became an academic. My research focus was on the impact of technology on young children's learning and on their brain development. And I then became a parent almost 10 years ago. And when we had our first son, now this isn't how I date his chronological age, but it is important to this story. He was born six months after the iPad was first released. So I had taken my son, who was six months at the time of this story, for his developmental check with the paediatrician, got the all clear, but I was the A-type nervous overachieving first-time mum. So I took him back to the local healthcare clinic to repeat the six-month check. I just wanted to make sure that nothing had been overlooked. Now, I will completely acknowledge my second son, I completely forgot his six months developmental check. I think I did it at 12 months. And I'm sitting here realizing my 15 month old son hasn't had any developmental check. You've worked it out now, Christy. I have. I've cracked the code. But the first one I did it twice. So I was sitting down with the local healthcare clinic nurse and she was asking all the regular questions you'd expect of a six month check. Was he having tummy time? Was he babbling? And she turned and asked me what screen time he was having. And I felt a little bewildered. I looked at her and leaned a little closer and said, Pardon? And she proceeded to ask me what screen time he was having. And I replied that he wasn't having any at six months of age. And she leaned a little closer and she pulled up her finger and she, you know, flicked it backwards and forwards with the accompanying sound of, 
that skippy sound. And she went on to tell me that my son would fall behind, that he should be learning colors, shapes, and numbers on the iPad. And he should also be watching about 15 to 20 minutes of Baby Einstein DVDs every day. Now, I wish listeners could see your face and your experience. <laughs> on your- <laughs> I'm trying not to say anything. I'm like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Yes, you heard correct. There was an allied health professional giving out really grossly incorrect information. Now, I had taken the 9am appointment and hadn't been caffeinated, so couldn't come up with a coherent response. So I left the appointment just flabbergasted at this really grossly incorrect, misleading information that I'd been given and got the baby to have a nap. And he took a very unusual nap that day. He had one of those four-hour naps where you go in and I checked that he was breathing and then I'd come out and crawl out. And in his nap, I did two things. The first thing I did was I went to social media and I shared my, I didn't reveal the details of the healthcare nurse, but I just revealed my experience and started a social media campaign that babies need laps, not apps. And I read the social media campaign went viral. And the second thing I did while he was having this unexpected nap was I thought, I'm going to write a book about this topic. People, I realised parents need research-based information about how to navigate technology. And having had that experience being an academic and also my experience as a teacher and my new experience being a mum, I knew what confusing, conflicting advice often we were given as either educators or as health professionals or as parents ourselves. So I act as a bit of a conduit between the research and science, but translating into what parents, educators, health professionals um, need to know about young children's digitalized childhoods and the impact that it's having on their learning and well-being. Wow. That is an amazing (laughs) story to kind of start this. And I think I'm still slightly speechless, which is rare. I'm still slightly speechless about that. What's going on there? And that's simply, yes, just anyway, that's just because part of a big job as a speech pathologist is where we certainly don't recommend screen time at such a young age because it's all about human interaction. But anyway, it's not about that today, but you're going to help us understand the balance between all of that. And I guess that leads me to my next question. Generally speaking, Christy, how do you define someone as being digitally healthy? Look, my message isn't that screens are bad, that you need to stop the, the stigma that technology is toxic and taboo because the reality is whether you love it or loathe it, technology is going to become and is an integral part of all our lives. What I believe that we need to teach young children is how to tame technology and not be a slave to their screen. Technology makes for a great servant, but it should not be our master. And so I want young children, when it's age appropriate, when it's designed in developmentally appropriate ways, when it's congruent with their developmental needs, I want them to use technology. So I just want to make that clear that this is not, you know, an anti-technology message. It's by all means use the technology, but leverage the benefits that it offers. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is where I'm often asked, you know, how much screen time is appropriate for young children? And what I go back to is exactly what you're talking about here. What's healthy use? Healthy use is making sure that technology supports, not stifles, children's, and I believe they've got seven developmental needs. And my book, I explain that the neuroscience and developmental science tells us that children have very clearly identified needs, psychological and physical needs. They need relationships, they need sleep, they need language, both receptive and expressive language, they need play, they need physical movement, they need nutrition, and they also need to develop executive function or higher order thinking skills. We need to make sure that their digital experiences support those seven developmental priorities and that they don't interfere with them. 
And for your listeners, we, for example, are seeing that excessive use of screens, particularly in the foundational early years, can displace opportunities for language development. That ping-pong serve-and-return interaction that we know young people need with parents, caregivers and, and early childhood educators. So making sure that technology isn't interfering with those needs. If we make sure that young children are meeting those seven developmental needs every day, then we can use technology without all this moral panic that it's going to damage or derail their development. Yeah, and it comes down to the education. And you're right, you don't want to put it in this big box of screens are bad because it's not about that. How do we create the boundaries? How do we learn what's appropriate? And how do I know where my child is at? Are they where they should be? Where do I get the advice about something that's going to complement and support their development? Because technology does amazing stuff. So it's more about, I think, getting that quality. And as you said at the start, the evidence-based information, that's what we're looking for. Because as parents, we want to do the best for our kids. So we're like, what, what information source is reliable? That's right. Prime example of that, I want to talk particularly with your audience about language, you know, technology. If we're using video chat technologies, as many people do now, you know, Skype and Zoom and FaceTime with a distant relative or a family member, you know, maybe you're a separated family, that's facilitating in an augmented way, that ping pong serve and return interaction. That is a very different experience than a young child sitting there watching YouTube clip after YouTube clip on their own, which is also very different to a child sitting there watching YouTube clips, but with their, what we call co-viewing, with their parent or caregiver or educator. So it's a really nuanced conversation. And again, getting that education to make those informed decisions. Yeah. And as we all know, it's individual and it's got to be looked at in context for everyone's dynamic, obviously. So when we talked about being digitally healthy, you mentioned those seven key areas and that's very much something that you cover in your book. Yeah, raising your child, okay, within a digital world. So for many who are kind of going, well, where do I start? Because it can be overwhelming and particularly, as you said, new mum, first time child, there's so much to think about conflicting info. If you could just simplify it and just go, what's the first thing you need to know in terms of the digital world and healthy habits? Yeah. So my message to parents is that you need to be the pilot, not the passenger of the digital plane. And as the pilot of the digital plane, you need to get three Bs right. The first B, and you mentioned it before, I was so pleased to hear you say it, Sonia, is that we need to establish boundaries around children's screen habits. Now, most parents and educators and and health professionals would talk about boundaries in terms of screen time, how much. And that is definitely important, particularly if it affects the next B, which is those basic needs that we just explored. But what we really need to do is broaden the conversation. We need to focus more on what they're doing with the technology. Is age appropriate? Is it active? Is it passive? Is it developmentally appropriate? So knowing what they're doing on the screen. Also looking at the times of the day. So when are they using it? We know, for example, technology can have a really detrimental impact on their capacity to focus and also on their sleep. So timing in the day is really important. Also having boundaries around where they use the technology. You know, where are the no-go tech zones in your house or in your learning environment? How? We know, for example, huge impacts on young children's visual development, their musculoskeletal development and also their hearing, and also knowing whom they're using the technology. So we need to establish boundaries. The second B that we've already discussed is making sure that their basic needs aren't being compromised because of technology. And the third B that we've got to get right as parents is ensuring that our children still have opportunities for boredom. 
Our brain was never designed to be switched on processing information 24-7. We have an ancient Paleolithic brain. It needs downtime. It needs digital disconnection. It needs to be unplugged. So more than ever, I think often news to parents is that it's okay. In fact, I'm going to prescribe that it's necessary for your children to be bored. So boundaries, basic needs, boredom. Fantastic. And, you know, that's great to hear because my kids are used to me saying boredom's really good for your brain. And they're like, oh, but I don't know what to do. I'm like, that's fantastic. <laughs> and they're just like, what is she on about? So my sons, when they declare, you know, they say it as though you've committed the worst crime against, you know, against childhood on them when you they declare that they're bored. And I say, look, I completely understand, sweetheart. I'm happy to help you. I'm going to give you two choices. Option one is that you can go off and find something to do with this idle board time that you've got. Or option two is I'm more than happy to come up with the task for you, but it will involve gloves, cleaning products. <laughs> And do you know what? They've never taken option two. I wonder why. <laughs> it's all right. I've got something I think I can work out. But yeah, look, it's, I find it quite fascinating and I get curious about what will they actually do when they're not tasked with anything. And just from a personal level, I think I find personally, you know, after school, if there is an afternoon where they don't have anything scheduled, I like to just kind of go, whatever. Like, I'm not telling you what to do. You've been told what to do all day at school. So have some time where you're making some decisions around what to do, you know, the boundaries, like they know the boundaries in terms of things we've already talked about. So they kind of then, I just get curious and just, and fascinated about what kids can actually come up with when they're left to their imaginative devices. And pardon the pun. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so important for them. We know that when we have, and when I work with corporate clients, one of the things I strongly encourage is that they digitally disconnect I don't know about you, Sonia, but I often have my best ideas when I'm on a plane with no Wi-Fi or when I've been for a run or a swim or go on holidays and there's no Wi-Fi connection or 5G. And the reason is we enter what we call, neuroscientists call the mind-wandering mode or the default mode of thinking. And so we turn off the logical part of our brain and we enter this creative state, which is great for ideation and problem solving. But we have become, as a society, so conditioned to filling our white space with picking up a screen or self-soothing with a digital device. A study was done a couple of years ago with adults and they put them in a room and said, look, sit there for 15 minutes and be bored. Now, as a mum whose kids still put their fingers under the bathroom door, that actually sounds like utopia to me. (laughs) I know. I'm like, yeah, that's good. But they had to end the study prematurely because the adult showed signs of psychological distress. They couldn't handle the boredom of that period of time. So they went back to their ethics committee and repeated the study, requested to repeat the study. But this time in iteration two, they requested that the adult participants, instead of being subject to the psychological distress of boredom, could instead self-administer a small electric shock. They got the all clear. 69% of males, 24% of females gave themselves an electric shock in lieu of being bored. We've lost the art. Wow. But do you know what that makes me wonder, Christy? That's really fascinating. But you know what that makes me wonder is you tell me you're you're the academic and whether you know the answer to this or not, but it makes me wonder about our neurology, our brains. How are our brains changing in response to a digitalized world. And obviously there'd have to be kind of long-term studies on this, but I wonder if you can tell us more, because now I'm just going, what is that? What's going on neurologic, you know, at a neurological level? Yeah. So it pains me to say this academic, 
but in many regards, we are conducting a bit of a living experiment. We have got no idea what the long-term impact is. You know, given that the iPad is going to turn 11 of the year we're recording this, I think it's 11, 10 or 11, it's 11. Yes, I'm dating my son's age. <laughs> yeah. It will be 11. And in 11 years, we have voraciously adopted it. We don't have a longitudinal data to look at the impact on children's health and well-being. We also know that the research that we do have with technology is very specific to a device or a platform or an app or a piece of software. It's hard to often generalise and transfer the findings. Having said that, we know a lot, you know, we've got a really robust body of research when it comes to neuroscience and developmental psychology. So I'm cautious, Christy, I go back to what do we know for sure? What does the neuroscience and developmental science tell us that young people need? So yes, the technology is changing the way our brains are wired. You know, one of the reasons kids throw techno tantrums is because they get hits of dopamine. The dopamine floods their brain and it makes them want more and more of it. Dopamine also hijacks the logical part of the brain, the part of the brain that is the impulse control center. So we know that, yes, it is having an impact, but to get ethics approval to do experimental studies with young children, really tricky in this particular area. Mm. So completely honest, we are trying to map a whole lot of different research on top of each other to try and get a clearer picture. But most of the research in the technology world, particularly with children, shows correlation it doesn't prove causation and we know if you remember back to your university days yep. just because there's a correlation doesn't mean that the root cause can be established i know yeah the yeah. other thing i want to make out is that it takes millions of years for our brains to evolve and change so a lot of people say oh you know we can multitask now because i've got 15 tabs open on my internet browser and i watch kids go between three apps and they've got music on in the background and the tv's on and they're messaging their friends we can't do that. We know equivocally, sorry, unequivocally, that multitasking has huge impacts on the brain. So there's pieces of the puzzle that we're beginning to put together. But in terms of the big picture, I'm going to be honest and say we don't really yet know. Yes. And there's so many variables to it. And there's all these questions running around in my head, obviously, because then I'm just thinking, how would you even study that? Because if you're looking at a particular, say, a game, that would be firing at a different level of stimulation to the brain than something else that is stimulating the brain in a slower way. And I don't want to get too technical, but they're the things that are kind of going on in my mind as to why it would be just so complex to get data and studies done. There's so many variables to this one. Absolutely. But that particular example you used of, you know, what they're playing and when they're playing it is a prime example of why we've got to have boundaries around what times of the day, because we know that when you're playing a rapid fire, fast paced game, or you're watching a cartoon show or a YouTube channel, that's all this fast paced action. What we know happens in the brain is that it gets hyper aroused. So you overstimulate the sensory and the nervous system. And so one of the other reasons we get techno tantrums and one of the other reasons that kids who have often used these types of technologies before school or before therapy find it really hard to focus is because they're in this dysregulated sensory and then nervous systems overstimulated. So yes. again, having those boundaries around timing and what they're doing at particular times of the day, it's not to say they should never play those games or watch YouTube, but be practical and sensible about the timing of those. So broadly speaking, and this is very broadly because it's going to be different for everyone, because we talked about boundaries and those kinds of things. But if we're looking at, say, activities that are potentially going to lead to hyper stimulation and that kind of thing, 
Can you broadly kind of group, you know, these are the kinds of things that are not ideal for this time of the day? Because I know that they talk about, okay, no screens in the bedrooms and things, but can you give us some broad kind of general idea as to how to create those boundaries and around what groups of screen time? Yes. So what I often say is to be very careful about booking, book ending your day with technology. So for example, we know that when young children wake up and the first thing they do is reach for if they've got a device, if they're in upper primary and many primary children now do have a device in their bedroom, if they wake up and reach for the device, it can activate their limbic system, their emotional system and their feet haven't even touched the floor in their bedroom. They only need to read one unkind message from their friend or see something on social media. Many of them, even though they're legally meant to be there, are using social media platforms. And so that negative mood can begin before they've even got out of their bedroom in the day. So being one, really trying to limit their access in the morning or discourage it. The other time of the day is at night. And we know that anything, as you suggested, that's rapid fire and fast paced, be it a video game or fast moving cartoons, anything particularly that is interactive. So it might be messaging friends. Where I often say to parents is watching television at night would be a better choice if, if technology is part of your evening routine because it's passive at this point in time. It will soon change. But for most of us, sitting and watching something is a passive activity. Uh, listening to an audio book, listening to a podcast, doing a mindfulness app, is a much better choice at night if technology is part of your evening routine. So it's about having some limits around what you're doing and when you're doing it. Generally speaking, if we want something to be educational or a learning activity, interactivity is best, better than passivity. So we want them actually touching and swiping and moving things and creating content as opposed to just sitting there and consuming, you know, videos and YouTube clips. Fantastic. And and what I'm hearing is, and I know a lot of parents, adults, I shouldn't just say parents, adults generally, we're kind of still learning this stuff too, you know. So as you know, because you do a lot of work with adults as well, and you know, we're learning as we go, what boundaries do we need to personally set? And the the topic of today in our discussion, and I'm just going to say it because I'm big on, we don't want parents to start feeling, oh, and what am I doing and what am I not doing and what am I role modeling and not role modeling? Because it's not about that. It's about just, I think, stepping outside yourself a little and going, let's look in and just try to understand what's going on and just being aware and just starting with just building the knowledge base. That's what today's talk is about. It's not about right or wrong. It's about education, awareness, and that's kind of my scope. Just want to get that in there. Yeah, and I think it's important. I often live by um, Mayor Angelo used to say, when you know better, you do better. And so much of this, you know, in our defence as adults, we are the first generation of people who are living and working in a completely digitalised world. If you're a parent, you've got no frame of reference about how to navigate parenthood in this digital space. We can't think back to our childhood or adolescence and think about how our parents dealt with the digital dilemmas we're facing because most of us, the only digital dilemma our parents worried about was what television episode we would watch at 3pm and there was probably one or two channels. We didn't have devices that could be smuggled into pyjama pockets. They weren't in the back of the headrest in the car. They couldn't travel in mum's handbag or dad's pocket. So we are in a totally different world. So we don't have a frame of reference. The other problem that we're all struggling with is that technology keeps evolving and changing exponentially. And just when we get our head around, you know, the latest trend or the app or the online risk, along comes something else to supersede it. So 
just do our best, be gentle with ourselves. And I think that's kind of the key thing, especially right now in the current climate. And I don't like COVID-19, I've got to say it, every, it's everywhere. But in the current climate, I think that's what I'm saying a lot. Just do your best, be gentle with yourself. Let's just keep it simple. You know, we're being forced to keep things simple and kind of back to basics in lots of ways. But that kind of leads me to kind of the next area, which is relevant to right now, Christy, which is where there's a lot of homeschooling happening for kids. So there's that incidental bit more screen time perhaps going on than what is usual. And I don't like to use the word screen time, but more of that online time, I guess. And so I'm kind of wondering what will it be more of a challenge or do you think there's been more challenges now at home with families i'm sure there have been but tell us about simple thing that we could do so boundaries is one if you haven't already set them if there's another tip you have for anyone that's struggling maybe getting more tantrums around the techno stuff have you got like something simple beyond the boundaries that parents can just go yep i'm going to do that tomorrow <laughs> Well, a couple of things. One of the things I want to say is frame this, and we never know how long this will go on for. Frame this and explain to your children that your screen time or your digital rules or your online rules are going to change for the next little while. And what I have found helpful, whether I'm talking to parents of young children or parents of upper primary or secondary students, is get their buy-in, get them to come up with what they think would be some good boundaries in this particular context. So yes, you're going to be, you know, I know you need to use your devices more for school activities. They're probably going to want to use their devices more as a communication tool to connect with their peers. And True. at this stage, that is really vital mm. for our young children in mental well-being. One of our fundamental psychological drivers as humans is the need for relational connection. So this is where we can tap into brilliant interactive technologies you know, having a, a Zoom call with your classmates or having a FaceTime call with a teacher or a group of a collection of your friends. So I just think getting your children's buy-in, they, we often underestimate that they actually have some really clever ideas and a good understanding and they often want our guidance as parents to help them. I've done a lot of work with young girls in upper primary school and they often say, I wish I could put my device down at night, but I can't. I really wish that my parents would help me and enforce those limits. Mm. So I think definitely get their buy-in. And then, I mean, we can talk about some strategies to prevent the techno tantrum if you, that is relevant. But I just think getting their buy-in and explaining to them that these are extenuating circumstances, so it's going to be a different state of play for the next little while. Yeah, makes total sense. It's just communicating it, being clear on the expectations and why it's a bit different. That's going to prevent challenges when they do go back to school. And look, I think that association will change anyway. Once they're back at school, they just flick back into that mode and, you know, gradually get back into kind of the, the routine that they had before. So that's really useful. And I really do like your advice there about upping the interaction time. I think that's, it's so crucial and so important and as you said there's some fantastic ways that they can keep the social things happening and just keep interacting with their peers and relatives and that kind of thing because I think that's the hardest thing right now with all the distancing and the isolation and so the connection is it's huge and it's doable and it's possible and we've just focus on that too. It also has huge reciprocal benefits. Our nine-year-old son today had a FaceTime call with his grandma and he spent the FaceTime call reading her his novel. And so she would respond with some little compress. She's a, a teacher. So she had to sprinkle in a little bit of educational content. So she asked him a couple of comprehension questions, asked him a couple of vocabulary words, but it made her feel important 
it gave them that connection piece. They had a little chat afterwards. He's already lined up with his grandfather tomorrow, who's a keen B-League supporter. They're doing an online quiz in real time. So they've been given a crossword to do online. They're logging in at the same time and they're going to set up a Skype call and they're going to share answers with each other to do that. So, you know, beautiful examples of using the technology and leveraging the benefits that it offers us, particularly in these coronavirus times, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And you just reminded me of when all this started and and my mum was like, oh, they're at home more. Great. Okay, kids, let's do FaceTime and you're going to learn Italian. And I'm like, okay, two words a day. I'm like, okay. So it's been really quite fascinating to just see how, you know, people are just, or not, I'm generally speaking, but they're really making the most of, oh, this is different. This is novel. What can we do here? And and there's been some, as you said, some really lovely and beautiful things that I'm hearing going on. So it's fantastic to hear you say that. So yeah, just keep those opportunities happening. So mm-hmm. tell us, you mentioned the techno tantrums, like we've got to just get some strategies on techno tantrums, surely. Give us a few quick ones. Can we prevent them? <laughs> I'm often asking an app that prevents them. No, there's not. But if you know an app developer, I'm telling you there's a very captive market out there that would buy your 99th techno tantrum prevention app. <laughs> Look, a couple of strategies that I know work really well across different age ranges of kids. The first one is called priming or cognitive priming. It basically means warn your child. If they're getting hits of dopamine, if they really love it, there's the novelty effect, warn them that their time's going to end. So that you don't just march in there and demand that they shut the lid on the laptop or put the console away. They might be halfway through a game or midway through an episode. So we really need to prime them. When you finish this episode, I'd like you to turn it off. When you get to the next level in the game, I'd like you to switch it off. And there's a bonus tip there. Giving them a sense of agency and control means that they're much more likely to want to follow through. So the sense that they feel that they're ending it. The other important point here, especially as it relates to that dopamine, is give them an appealing transition activity. Do not say to your son, you know, when he was still doing homework, turn off the gaming console and go and do your maths homework. Do not say to your children, you know, YouTube's over, go and tidy your bedroom. Just really not appealing activities. They don't need a long menu. They need a choice of two. When you've turned off the iPad, would you like to jump on the trampoline or take the dog for a walk? Would you like to go and read a book or sit and do a Lego puzzle or Lego set? Whatever activities you know that they find appealing and that will give them the hit of dopamine. That can work really well. The other strategies that can work really well, one of the reasons that all of us, kids, teens and adults, find it hard to switch off is because the online world is like a bottomless bowl. There's no stopping cues. There's no finish point. So we enter something that's called the state of insufficiency. So we never feel done. That's why your kids will say to you with their puppy dog eyes, please just, you know, one more level or I've only just turned it on. So disable autoplay on Netflix, on YouTube, on all our streaming services. The fault setting is now the autoplay feature. Go into your settings and disable that. Give young children what I find works better rather than an amount of time because most children don't have a conceptual understanding of what time is until it's, you know, it's very abstract, until they're somewhere between 8 and 10 years of age. So rather than a time limit, give them quantities. You can get to level 7 in the game. You can craft this many things in Minecraft. Giving them tangible quantities works a lot better. When they are getting agitated, when you're trying to digitally disconnect them, see if you can physically touch them. When they're erupting and telling you that you're the worst mum in the whole world because you made them turn it off, 
just a hand on their forearm, give them a cuddle, physical touch releases oxytocin, which is the love hormone. So it's near impossible for them to be filled with anger if they've gone over to that tipping point. Green time after screen time, time in nature helps to recalibrate and calm them down. Our physical activity also works really well as well. But I think having those boundaries in place so that they know where and when they can use the technology, warning them and then having some consistent boundaries around that, hopefully the tantrums eventually dissipate. That is fantastic. They are great tips that we can just implement straight away. I really like that. And also want to reinforce, you know, from that personal professional angle, giving them choice. Giving them choice is really important. It's just so important because once they do that, they've then taken ownership and they're accountable. And I find that then they're often, there's that follow through with whatever they've agreed to. So that's a really, really important part of that little recipe that you've given us. Thank you. That is fantastic, Christy. Excellent. So just a couple more questions because, you know, our conversation could be a bottomless pit too. So how do you know, what are the kind of the signs? It's going to be different for every child, but how do you know if a child is kind of reaching their digital load, if it's a bit too much? What are some little telltale signs we can look out for before it gets to a peak? Yes. So I think these red flags and we've got to be very careful. I'm very reluctant to use the word addiction with children. There is really mixed evidence as to whether an internet addiction is a legitimate medical issue from a children and adolescents perspective in particular. I'm not denying that some children develop problematic behaviours. So some red flags that I often encourage parents to look out for, have their school grades changed dramatically? Uh, Have their interests, the regular interests suddenly taken, you know, a nosedive? Are they wanting to use the technology for increasing amounts of time than what they did previously? Are they hiding or or being secretive about what they're doing with their devices? So we know a lot of kids are now purchasing decoy devices, so they'll hand one into their parents and then they'll get another one. Are their moods changing? And again, some of these are really hard to disentangle from regular developmental stages. Of course, of course, yeah. Hitting puberty or if just had a rotten, no good, terrible day, you might demonstrate some of these. Clinicians are telling us that in order to be having, you know, a recognised problematic behaviour, you need to actually identify some of these behaviours. They are actually saying three of these behaviours for a 12-month period. Yeah. So, you know, I'm using these as sort of red flags. If their regular interests have been completely displaced, if their peer group suddenly changes and there's no sort of underlying reasons why that might have otherwise occurred, if they suddenly give up sporting activities or other interests that they previously had, if they become a lot more secretive, you know, taking devices into places, if they're asking for money, this is a big one for a lot of parents, They don't realise that often their children are making in-app purchases or have been asked, they've been groomed by somebody to send the money. So they're some of the more discreet ways. But I think I can say to parents, you know your children best. I think if you've got a hunch that something may be amiss, if you can, in the first instance, speaking to the teacher or another caregiver and getting their insights and also going to seek medical advice at all concerned because it could be something else that you might need to rule out as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's excellent advice. And there are a lot of things. And as you said, you've got to really look at these things over a period of time. We know we see it in our kids pretty, you know, pretty promptly. And then we kind of go, okay, I've noticed that. I'll just keep an eye on that. And you just kind of observe it and observe it until you kind of feel like you need to take a next step if you need to at all. So yeah, very important ones to know. 
one really important one, sorry, I forgot. One of the key indicators is withdrawal. So kids that can't be agitated. And I had a parent tell me recently, they didn't realise their, their son who was in primary school was so infatuated, obsessed, I might, with technology until they went on an international flight and they got on the plane and he was told there was no Wi-Fi on this 15-hour flight. His emotional combustion was not, you know, within the realm of age appropriateness. And so that was a really big red flag, you know, demonstrating signs of withdrawal. I know that's a medically loaded word, but just being mindful if you see starts, that's starting to creep in. It might be time to revisit some of the boundaries as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if we can now just flip that on its head and just go top tips, how do we best support as parents and just summarize, Christy, kind of the top three, perhaps top tips for parents and carers, and then also the educators and the health professionals working with children, what would be the top three tips to keep that health happening with digital space? Yes. So the first tip, whether you're a parent, an educator, or a health professional is definitely establishing boundaries with children that you either care for, support or teach and extending those boundaries beyond the how much but also related to that is having personal boundaries around your device use. The researchers have coined the term technoglect or digital abandonment and it's this idea that it's digitally distracted caregivers and parents and educators and this is not to shame or guilt parents. We know there have been fatalities where parents and caregivers have been digitally distracted through no fault of our own. You know, these technologies have been engineered to be to hijack our attention. Um, but just be mindful of our habits because our kids emulate them and imitate them. So I think definitely boundaries with our kids and our own personal boundaries. I also think trying to leverage the benefits that technology offers us. Can you use it as a tool for communication or collaboration or creation? Really trying to exemplify the benefits that it offers all of us and where possible, using it with children. Now, I know that's not always feasible if you're a busy parent, um, but even asking them, showing an interest and having some conversations so they can share with you what it is that they're doing when they're spending hours on Minecraft or what is the YouTube channel that you really like watching. That is a preventative measure as much as anything. It sort of stops the technology being secretive or toxic or taboo, but it also shows your kids that you've got a vested interest in what it is that they do. My final tip... I really am a firm believer is to digitally disconnect. It's to have moments and white space where you're not tethered to technology. It is so important for our well-being. It's so important for our, our physical health. But having that white space in our weeks doesn't have to be every day, but having pockets of time where all of us switched off. Fantastic. Fantastic, Christy. You've been amazing with everything you have shared today. That is fantastic. So where can listeners learn more about you, your work, and now particularly now you're doing a lot of stuff and you offer stuff online too. Where do you recommend people can find more information? So I have my digital home is at drchristygoodwin.com. I will send uh, your link if you want to pop in the show notes. Sonia, I've got a digital wellbeing checklist that parents can download. Lovely. And for educators as well, I've got professional development resources that teachers and educators can do anywhere, anytime. I've got a whole lot of blog posts that support parents. And I also have a switched on parents portal, which is basically an online library where parents can go to get bite-sized bits of information about how they navigate this ever-changing digital world. So I'll send through a discount code. I'm happy to offer a 20% off discount code. And it's a lifetime access. It's a one-off fee and you get the whole library 
And because this is an ever-changing world, I'm constantly adding to the library with the latest digital issues and dilemmas that parents are facing. Yes, amazing. And there's so much value that you've just kind of put out there in 10 seconds. So yes, so listeners, I do encourage you to follow up on Christy's links and information there. And I think there's so much we can learn from that to just keep supporting our children and also ourselves. They're not separate to us. So I've got to make that clear. We are, we're a unit, we're dynamic and yep, that's how we've got to look at it instead of them and us. It really is us. So Dr. Christy Goodwin, thank you so much for joining the chat about children today. A value-packed episode there with Dr. Christy Goodwin. Remember to check out the chataboutchildren.com website for those valuable resources that she mentioned and also to take up the opportunity of the promo code that she so generously offered to the Chat About Children listeners. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to share with your family, with your friends and with your colleagues. And it would be fantastic if you could leave a rating and a review as well. Thank you so much for your attention. I celebrate you and look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestelich, www.chataboutchildren.com. Chat